Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 459 of Constructor Criticism. I'm your host, Easy, and I'm joined by my co-host, Abe Stein. It's me! And Mason Clark. I'm on a Zelda kick. It's really good for my RC. Uh, yeah, it's been really bad for me, too. We can talk, we can talk about that later. Uh, I, I got... I was talking to Patreon, patron uh, Mikey, and I was like, <laughs> it was a funny, it, we were in the Discord, like, with a bunch of Patreon listeners, and uh, I was like, how did you come up, like, like, with the Mikey Hopkins? He's like, well, have you ever met Tannen Grace? And I was like, yeah, Tannen was the first person to congratulate me about my wedding. And he's like, oh, well, he's the Tannen Grace. I was like, okay, you wanted to be like Tannen. That's, like, a fine reason, I guess. I thought Tannen, sure. who I do not sound like for the record. You do. You do. I actually I, I actually when we were in San Diego, I was going to get you two to talk, but he was so busy with coverage that I didn't want to interrupt him. Like I just gave him a hug and said hi. You should have. I love Tannen. I didn't I realize also he was Tannen. doing coverage uh, on that weekend. You didn't realize he was there? No, I, I didn't see him at once. I didn't realize yeah, he was there. Yeah, he, he was he in Dallas. Dallas. Yeah, he does coverage for all the RCs. Okay, if he's in Dallas, I'll try to get I'll try to get five minutes of his. We'll get a video of us talking and you will hear that we do not sound the same. You sound the yeah, you know what? You sound exactly Abe, Abe I, I, as the former Dallas champion, I'll, I'll make sure to bring you to Tannen. That way you, I can introduce you and get a voice clip and everything. <laughs> I'll me to t- I've known Tannen for years. What's this introduced me? Tannen and I are friends. What is this? Right. No, I, you don't have to be brave on the show. It's okay. All I right, know you own out. the city of Dallas now. You won in the last room hack, and now you're defending your title. But I mean, I don't know Tannen Grace. I, you know, this show is, while it could be a Tan and Grace, uh, you know, love podcast, you know, a, a signal to our love for him. It's not. In fact, today we actually have uh, Nathan, uh, I'm going to say it wrong, and he already told me how to say it. Stower. Is it? Stoyer. Stoyer. There we go. Nathan Stoyer joining the show. Um, it was, it, you know, just behind the scenes. Yeah. we. It's a great recording. I, I'm really glad that we got to do this. So we'll jump into that after... Hashtag always improving. And Mason, it's your week to go first. Yeah, so I think I talked a little bit about this. Actually, no, now I'm thinking about it. This was our, our podcast. And you know, I was talking about friction versus fuel. But last week I mentioned the Hidden Brain podcast. And it was a podcast kind of like Freakonomics and Radio Lab. I had some listeners reach out to me about also liking it. I think that's a good way to describe it. Uh, and an episode they had that I was listening to, they were talking about friction and fuel when it comes to problem solving and getting people to do what you want. So friction is something that's in the way, fuel is a motivating thing. So for example, you know, you wanna go play with your friends after school or whatever, but there's homework in the way, uh, and the fuel your parents might be like, well, you get this homework done, you know, in an hour, I'll give you $20, right? And the idea is like, you know, removing friction is often stronger than adding fuel or whatever it is, right? So like, hey, play some of your friends now and then do your homework later might be a better way to get better results from everything. Uh, and it really got me thinking about this when it comes to deck and card selection, because often what happens is, is players find a problem with a deck, and then they are confronted with that problem, and they just go to try and find a deck that doesn't have problems, or maybe doesn't have that specific problem. And I really wanted to think about how do I remove friction? How can I stop the thing that's preventing me from playing this deck, and is there a way to? Uh, and so I spent a lot of time thinking about that for the RC here in Dallas. And so... Um, like for, I think at the time this will be out, decks will be out or whatever, but like Arclight Phoenix is the deck I'm leaning towards right now. And there were a couple of problems in the sideboard mapping and like, how do I solve these problems? They're not insurmountable, but they are frustrating. And it led me to try new ideas and be like, okay, 
can I like circumvent this? Or is there things I can learn from other decks like lateral thinking, like Abe's talked about? How can I remove this friction this is causing here instead of just being like, okay, here's just a bunch of cyborg cards for it, right? So doing that was uh, really great and it was really helpful. And I think it's something I really want to adopt into my process a lot more of really being like, okay, there are problems and maybe the problems are big, but can we overcome those problems? And what does it look like to overcome them? So that was my always improving moment. Awesome, man. Uh, I'll go next. Uh, this last week, I took a break from Magic. I didn't intend any RCQs, but shout out to um, you know two of the members of the cut, Nick Lassen and uh, and William Jackson, for both taking down uh, RCQs uh, in my absence. Congrats to both of them. Uh, but I have been taking a break for a reason, uh, which is that while y'all are in Dallas, I'm attending my first super major, uh, ever, uh, from, for Super Smash Brothers Ultimate, um, at, uh, Crown 3. And, you know, kind of just spending time focusing on all the things. I had spent a couple months prepping or, or practicing different stuff, trying to find a new main and, and landed on some really interesting things, but... One of the ways that this applies to magic uh, is kind of the difference between practice and preparation and how they, while practice is part of your preparation, like they are different things in a lot of ways. And I, I, we kind of talk about this uh, later in the episode with Nathan, but part of what I've been doing is understanding, watching a lot more Smash, um, uh, sitting down and watching it with, uh, with, my, with my play partner, Matt Kling, breaking down what we think is happening, what we understand, why people are doing things, the adjustments that people are making throughout the games and why we think that they're doing that. And, you know, also break, like getting into the, uh, the, like the practice mode in smash and practicing movement with the characters. Now that I've uh, narrowed down who I'm going to play. Um, and then even today, uh, you know, knowing that a certain character uh, is really really bad for my my character um, coming up with a plan to, to do something different. I'm actually not play my character in that matchup and figure out a different thing to be doing and actually practicing uh, you know very precise practice uh, for that specifically. And it's really interesting because in Magic, you know you you have that ability to sideboard and you have that ability to adjust to things, right? And in Smash, you know I. I like to tell people, like, what is Smash like? It's like it's like playing Magic, but at, like, hyper speeds. Like, you're playing Magic really fast. Uh, it's like a turn-based game, but the turns take, you know, milliseconds. Um, so it, it was really fun to kind of take a step back from Magic and, and really put my efforts into something else. You know, I have two things to say about that, Spencer. One, I forgot the name of the game is. I'll t uh, find it for my friend, but they've been playing it. They're, someone took a... Um, they took a platform fighter, and then they made it into a game where you slow it down and you can play it frame by frame against someone. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. But I feel like you would love it based on the way that you're talking about thinking about... Um, thinking about Smash, and just hearing you say that made me think of it. I'll, I'll have to get a... I'll link to it and play it to you. Um, but the other question I have is how did how did Maxwell do in a soccer game? Uh, Maxwell didn't have a soccer game this weekend. A lot of people asked me that after the last episode. We got direct feedback that that was really enjoyable. Uh, Maxwell actually didn't have a soccer game. I was like, I literally went downstairs Saturday morning. I was like, hey, what time soccer? He's like, I don't have a game this weekend. I'm upset about it. <laughs> I was like, 
Uh, okay, buddy, I'm sorry. Oh my god, true. He was ready to go though. Yeah, he's in. <laughs> we, I, uh, I, I actually, I should say that on the show. I really appreciate the number of people that enjoyed that peek into parenthood and personal life stuff. Uh, I got messages. We got stuff in the Discord. It, it meant a lot. It was uh, my tear up. It, it meant a lot to me. So, well, with that out of the way, <laughs> yeah, go I ahead. Before I, I guess my my, uh, my always improvement moment this week um, actually comes kind of from uh, I was at the state of disillusionment with Pioneer. I talked about on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Um, and I really started playing, I started playing Lutri as kind of like a, a way to half combat that half, you know, really understand the, the breadth of the format. Um, but now looking forward to the RC this weekend, um, something I've been reflecting on is really trying to ensure that the RC I'm playing is fun. You know, I, I'm pretty settled on stock green. Um, it's just felt really good for me whenever I've been playing it. Um, I think it's like, it's hard for it to be too wrong a choice. And one of the things that I felt really kept me engaged and led to me, you know, really having a, a positive performance in spite of, um, you know, a, a shaky start in um, San Diego was that I was having the most fun playing the format that I had in forever. And while I still am kind of not the most in love with the Pioneer format right now, I've been trying to just think about ways to ensure I'm not coming in burnt out and I'm not um, not coming in in a way that's going to lead to me not having fun. Because I feel like when I'm having fun, I'm going to do better in the event. And in general, when I'm having fun playing Magic, you know, it, even the RCQ I won last weekend, I was having a blast kind of just laughing at the fact that I'm playing stock green. And, um, you know, it's still just a very good deck and people still don't play and it makes me, like, question them. But, uh, like, yeah, really just trying to embody that and finding ways that I'm going to uh, be intentional about making sure I'm having fun this weekend so that I can play my best. Cause I think when I'm playing my best, um, you know, and I'm playing good deck, I have my best chance. So that's what I've really been focusing on, um, this week, especially after, uh, you know, a couple weeks of the RCQ grind and, and being ready to throw myself into, uh, into the RC as well. Awesome. Well, that is going to do it for always improving. If you want to, uh, support the show directly, the best way to do that is head over to patreon.com slash C C mtg become a patron of the show uh every patron gets a shout out which uh i think we might have missed leo last time and i just want to make sure that he gets his shout out so leo thank you so much for joining the show and we really appreciate you with that being said let's dive into our interview with nathan well welcome nathan thank you so much for being on the show today uh man we're we're super stoked to have you yeah i'm super happy to chat with you guys and uh give some of my thoughts and share. I mean, yeah, it's a pleasure. Well, you know, I, I think that it, the best way to, to to bring you in is kind of talk about, you know, you're the 2022 world champ, you've won a pro tour, won multiple mocks, uh, you know, really, uh, it, I, I'll say it if nobody else, but like maybe the best player in the world right now, if not just de facto the best player in the world right now. Uh, how does it feel to be introduced like that? Yeah, I mean, it feels a little bit foreign to some degree. I mean, my success in the last year, especially um, the end of October with Worlds and then in this last Pro Tour, winning the last Pro Tour, feels like a level up from where I was previously at, where I was doing really well online and competing in the Mox events. Um, a lot of what I've noticed is a big difference between the two and, and where I see myself now is I think I've really upgraded my ability to 
navigate these really tricky and complex um, signals from the opponents. And I think that one thing I struggled with for a little while is, you know, I, I had a pretty good understanding of each matchup and my role and I think a good plan, but where my strengths lie that I think kind of uh, separates me from a big group of players is I have a pretty good technical understanding of the opponent's psychology, what their plays making that what what plays are they making and what does that mean about the rest of their hand? And so if I had to navigate towards one skill that I've improved the most upon, it's how I can effectively hand read, which is also something that I've learned how to teach others. And that's what I think is one of the biggest factors in having a competitive edge. Can I ask, uh, is that is that something that you worked on directly? Something that you worked really hard on? Yeah, I would say that it's specifically something that I've spent a ton of hours watching replays and trying to pay attention to what signals I might be missing. Um, also, it's not really very intuitive how you go about practicing this skill. And so one way that I've learned how to practice it is um, I I do this when I do coaching and other sorts of ways of teaching others. And I think it's something that I've integrated quite well. But I start the game by paying attention to exactly what my opponent's lands are. And I use the frame of what's the best possible play my opponent can make this turn. And so starting with that frame, I keep a notes pad next to me, especially when I'm playing online to get better at this with one, if they made their best possible play, great, I can move on. But if they made something that I've identified as, you know, their second best play or their third best play, we can even say, starting from an example of if my opponent plays a swamp over a hive of the eye tyrant turn one, I'm going to immediately notice that now and think, okay, there may be a little bit more land light than I would otherwise expect. And reading into these signals more heavily over time has made it clear to me that I can figure out an opponent's range with paying attention to lands and then ask myself, if they didn't make their best play and they made their second best play, can I eliminate that best play from their hand? And if so, what other information can I extrapolate? Um, so, I mean, it's obviously a pretty in-depth process, but I would say that that's a huge category of improvement for most competitive players. That's really good, man. I, that was, I, you already answered the question that I was going to ask next. So, uh, I, do you, Mason or Abe, do you have anything you want to say on that before we, I, I got to write that down. I'm going to go back and listen to this and write gonna, that down. I, exactly. I'm going to put it on TikTok. Like I'm literally going to just zoom in to Nathan's face and there's just gonna be a TikTok of him saying that. That was really good. Man. We're done here, right? That's that's the whole interview. Listeners <laughs> <laughs> got everything they need. Um man, that was that was insightful. Uh I, I we ha- we have listeners that we allow to ask questions. If you want to ask questions to guests, um you know the best way to do that is get over patreon.com slash CCMTG. Become a patron of the show. Um the first question comes from Leo. It says for Nathan, um what does your weekly routine look like uh, you know, in between back-to-back major tournament wins, uh, how much do you practice playtest, and what does your playtesting look like? Yeah, so I work with Team Handshake for a lot of pro tours and every event in between, and a lot of what my week-to-week looks like is there's usually a big tournament we can say twice a month, sometimes as little as once a month, and in between the tournaments, I coach full-time, which means that about 20 hours a week are spent helping others improve. And for me, that's a good way of staying sharp, meaning that when I'm helping other people, it doesn't only feel like I'm trying to teach them skills. It's keeping my own skill set sharp and keeping my mentality about it quite sharp as well. Um, So 
when I'm coaching, that's a big way that I'm retaining my skills. And then in order to sharpen them, a big thing that I do is I'll grab a testing buddy from team handshake. We have about 15 members. And so we'll usually play one V one sets with a specific goal in mind, meaning we'll each have a constructed deck. Uh, for example, for the upcoming pro tour, we are testing modern and we've already gotten a little bit of a head start on testing modern. And so we would, let's say we want to figure out is the creativity versus rhinos matchup close um in the past we thought maybe rhinos was a deck that was favored against creativity but with the introduction of change the equation or something else that could change the matchup potentially what are the actual percentages on each side and so one way we'll figure out and testing is we we do have to pay attention to make sure each player is on the player draw the same number of times so that's not a factor like anything you want to eliminate the variables that aren't particularly helpful so one thing we pay attention to is, are you winning a lot of draws where the Rhinos player has force negation and backs that up with violent outbursts plus force negation on turn three? We're specifically trying to gather data on what sorts of interactions are hard for a deck to beat and what do you need to pay attention to for a matchup specifically? What determines the outcome? So approaching it by coming in with a list of questions that you need to ask yourself is a big way that you can get an edge in terms of saving time. Um, a big part of being efficient in the process as well is you have to make sure that what you're doing is you're you're acting with intentionality behind each testing session. Often so when you're new to a format, for example, we'll just say, we think these are the best three decks. We're just going to play these decks against anything you want to play. And so I'll just play, again, creativity for the day. You can bring whatever deck you want to bring against me and let's see how it goes. And that way we can eliminate things that we think well, if you can't beat the obvious best deck going into this tournament, do we really want to consider this for our pro tour? So different processes help us confine our options, and this allows us to have a more efficient process that lets our time be maximized. You speak to me of time being maximized there, and for a lot of listeners, they might want to emulate something like this. They might have like a local friend group and stuff like that. What? How much time are y'all putting into it? And is it a thing where are you going until you think you find the truth of the matchup? You know, like you mentioned Rhinos versus Creativity, for example. Are you going to sit there and be like, no matter what, we're going to play six in the play, six in the draw. If it takes three hours, it's three hours. You know, if it takes 10 hours, it's 10 hours, whatever it is. Or are you like, once you feel you got there, you stop and sort of move on from there? What's sort of the process in that department? Yeah, so it's very contextual, obviously. But a big part of this is some questions are more valuable than others. Like you were saying, like creativity versus rhinos is going to be a format defining thing. And so we kind of need all hands on deck. If I, it's small data points. So if I finish a set of, you know, 10 matches or even 10 games, whatever I have time for in a lot of chunk and write up my conclusions, then we expect another set of two testing partners to do the same thing so that we can compare conclusions and make sure our biases going in aren't particularly strongly weighing what we, decide is the right outcome and um other, otherwise i feel that my typical a lot of time is when i'm this far out of a tournament i can expect to play about maybe two hours a day would be like a good baseline um even that feels a little hefty like this far out for a tournament at the end of july and then as we get a month and a half or a month out maybe a little bit closer to your playing three to five hours a day. Um, and and the beauty of having a big testing team is different people on the team have different amount of uh, hours that they can commit. And so we have some people who 
you know, maybe they're not the sharpest at metagaming, but they can use the time and they are good players who can sit there and grind answers to the questions that we bring them. So it is important to have different rules on the team for that re reason. You're reminding me a lot of... <laughs> You're making me reminisce about uh, back when uh, I was trying to get on the Pro Tour and we had Team Oasis games. Um, it, it's interesting to hear you talk about the, the differences in, in like what the teammates bring to the table. And before we move on to the next question, because I, you know, I don't want to spend too, too much time on this, can I ask how you compiled your team? Like how, how you guys... Is it just a bunch of friends? Is it like specific skill sets you were looking for? Uh, how did that come about? Yeah, so about two years ago in the uh, first year of COVID, it was, I believe, yeah, so the end of 2021. Uh, yeah, we, was it the end of 2021? Sorry. Um, the middle of 2021, we formulated Team Handshake, which kind of expanded from the original vision pitched by Sam Rolf, um, for those familiar with him. We had a team called Team Swan MTG that I was a part of. And after the first online um, set championship, we combined forces with Team 50%, who was Alan Wu and David Inglis or Tangrams's squad of about six to eight people um at that point it wasn't so large and so that group kind of amalgamated and made it so that we had a pretty consistent group of maybe 18 people at that point it was a little larger but over the course of the last year and a half we've had different people cycle in and out and the biggest thing to note is that there have been about 10 members on the team that have been super consistent stayed on the pro tour and a lot of this is due to them recognizing what they need to do to support the team and make sure that the team keeps flowing. Um, as for myself, I see my role on the team being that I have a very good ability to extrapolate information based on a smaller sample size of games. And so when I'm testing, I think that my intuition is quite sharp and that I can offer a lot of good insights into games that I watch as well. Um, one thing that I actually struggle with in that regard is I'm not someone who can sit there and play as many games as I'd like in terms of raw numbers of matches. And so this means that my ability to be strong in theory can work really well for me who doesn't need to play as many games. But for the sake of my team, I believe that one role I could do a better job in is playing more games because that's where I can offer a lot of insights. And I think that my technical play can sometimes warp certain matchups depending on my opponent and so that's something that i'm a little cognizant of which is i think that i have pretty good technical understanding of the game and you have to know what information you can actually take away from certain matches um that that's one small part of it yeah you kind of talked about this next question a little bit but uh donnie asks what is your process for selecting a deck to work on not decks for a specific tournament but selecting the deck that's worth it to, and to learn and revise yeah so to select the deck that's worth it to learn and revise to me that kind of strikes me as like well whatever deck i think i want to learn is a deck that i think is going to i i go in so you go into every tournament and before the tournament in your prep at least for me i'm going to have some biases into decks that i like in terms of 
things that I think play to my strengths, um, whether that's just playing mid-rangey interactive games of magic or trying to do something um, where I'm disrupting my opponent with counter magic. I think that I typically bias towards these sorts of um, interactive archetypes in general. But one thing that I've learned from the last uh, Pro Tour, actually the last Pioneer Pro Tour in Philadelphia, was that I need to sort of drop some of these assumptions at the door. For example, for that tournament, I decided that I was going to learn Lotus Field, which is a combo deck, and that's not really something that was usually in my repertoire. So that took a lot of active attention to skills that I otherwise sort of dismissed. Um, I would say my process looks mostly like, does a deck that fit into my current skills look good in the format? If so, I'll start there. And if I'm starting somewhere, it means that I'm going to play some games of the deck and feel it out and see what the strengths or weaknesses of it are. And if I feel that I can make some improvements to it, I'll start by tinkering and iterating there. Um, Naturally, with a very strong team, it means that my information that I have is going to change kind of rapidly as this deck or other decks similar to it start getting tested more. And so often what I'll notice is I like a deck, but I have to trust my teammates that they say, okay, this deck is really not doing it after I do my own due diligence and play it myself against whatever they think is good against it. Um, Yeah, I'm pretty happy to try to learn a deck by tinkering, uh, practicing whatever deck fits closely to my set of skills is, and then moving on to the next thing that my teammates are a big fan of. Next question comes from Donnie. um, Or sorry, not Donnie. Next question comes from Derek. Um, He says, as a new player entering the modern format, Rhinos looks like a good entry point. How would you approach learning Rhinos and modern to a beginner? So when you're trying to learn Rhinos, a big thing that I've noticed is you have to have a strong understanding of your keep and Mulkin range. That's one of the more defining things with the archetype because the deck is so powerful that when you get to do your thing and play an interactive spell on turns one or two into a Rhinos on turn three in a lot of matchups, that's going to go a long way. I think that having a strong understanding of the hands you can keep on the player draw and then also adapting based on the opponent's deck is a huge part of it. I think that Rhinos is not one of the harder decks to get into because the deck can be very rewarding, um, just given that if you chain multiple Violent Outbursts and Rhinos in a row, there's a lot of decks that will just instantly fold to it. But a good way of practicing it is trying to define matchups that you're going to have an example hand against. So basically practicing your mulligans against decks that you've established. I would start by looking at five hands, being like, okay, is this a keeper mulligan against creativity? Is this a keeper mulligan against four color control? Is this a keeper mulligan against whatever other decks you're interested in testing against? And that's typically how I start the process, um, just going over mulligans and getting my sense of ranges that I keep. Um, After that, in terms of learning modern, I believe, um, I think modern is quite challenging to learn because there's an overwhelming number of decks that people can show up with. And so it's usually best for you to stick to a few archetypes that are among the top five to 10 decks and practice with those archetypes until you get a sense of which one you think will be better in uh, the current metagame you're going to face. And so before any tournament, I would suggest laying out what your expectations are for a metagame because this will largely define what matchups you want to tune your deck for. And so in modern, what that would look like is take the top 10 decks and 
try to pick three of them you think will be a little more representative to it. Um, don't bias in a super strong direction either way because there's so many decks, but that's typically my process at least. Awesome. Uh, next question comes from Mikey. It says, what are some ways or tips that have helped you understand small edges you can get from winning games of Magic? So I talked about it earlier. Um, I think that reading into your opponent's mana is one of the biggest things you can do at the start of every game, and you could always practice this skill. And to be more specific about what that means, it means asking yourself, did my opponent play a land that is their best possible land right now? And it's easiest to do this when you look at something like when you're playing Pioneer, for example, fast lands are the easiest signal to look for. Um, when you're playing Modern, for, I typically look towards, okay, did my opponent play a basic land over a fetch land in a spot where it doesn't make sense? Um, otherwise, in terms of small edges, I would say the other thing you can do is if you're trying to select a deck, try not to be... Basically, what my philosophy on deck selection is, is there's a point at which you can only be so wrong. And so try to make solid deck choices more than trying to swing for the fences and pick a deck that you think will be good regardless of any wild metagame expectations if you don't have a ton of time to prep. Um, so I would say, yeah, deck selection, choose a solid deck and make sure to have a strong understanding of the mulligans behind it for the top matchups you expect. Um, going in, I suggest having an idea of a sideboard mapping. And that's the other thing that may many players undervalue, which is you should have a written up sheet, whether you use it or not, of what cards you're bringing in and what cards you're bringing out um, and making sure beforehand, and this is the important part to highlight, that there are not certain cards in your sideboard that are only coming in in one specific spot. So you're trying to, you know, sometimes you can do that for very specific combo decks, but typically you want your cards to be good in multiple matchups and to overlap. And so utilizing a sideboard mapping sheet lets you see exactly how many cards you're bringing in a certain matchup and what cards are being underutilized. So yeah, those are the three sort of tips I would give out. Uh, next question comes from Yeoman5. He says, everyone always mentions watching back your VODs or replays uh, to get better, but how do you go through a replay when you review? Yeah, so replays, I start by... Um, paying attention to so usually if i'm looking at one of my matches i'll have a sense of okay this was the outcome of the game where can i identify a critical turn in the game where the game either went in my opponent's favor or in my favor and that's the first thing i'm looking for which is where did a major swing take place in the game before that i'm trying to figure out if there was an opportunity for me to be aware of information that I might have missed the first time. So in order to seek information in a VOD replay, I typically look for signals from the opponent. One thing you can do that I find quite helpful is basically ignoring your side of the battlefield and writing down what the opponent is doing. And so I try to picture what my opponent's hand can look like. After I look at a whole game, you can even go back and be like, okay, well, they made this play on turn three. They made this play turn four. What could their hand have possibly looked like Um at the start of the game, just going back from the final state of it. And so I, I definitely think that operating in reverse there and paying attention to what the opponent was working with and what you could have 
known about that is one way to get better at at uh, playing through VOD reviews. Otherwise, I think that VOD reviews are really helpful for you identifying any sort of mistake that you made that you might have just missed. And I think for a lot of players, mistakes that you make are not going to be clear punts. You want to identify what what decision you made that was sort of a, a choice you made with the information you had that maybe didn't factor in the right information you actually had at the time. Um, trying to distinguish those two categories. So if I can follow up um, in a similar vein, Nathan, you mentioned right at the beginning of this talking about, um, you know, uh, using information that your opponent's giving you from their side of the table and kind of that process. But you said something interesting in there, which is really identifying what the, um, what the best possible thing is and then kind of the branching decisions below that. Um, you know, for a lot of players, that's probably in and of itself an intimidatingly large thing to even understand, right? Like thinking about if you're someone who only has time or is really getting into a format for the first time to really understand their deck, um, you know, how do you go about making sure of that, especially when you're looking at formats as broad as modern or pioneer when you're you know taking time to test for them for, for these large events, how are you going through and making sure you understand the breakdown of those plays and what's your heuristic around that? Because I feel like if you can really shortcut that process, um, you know, it helps you, it helps you understand a lot more the texture of those games. Yeah. I think that one asset you can use when you're playing online and prepping for events is you can pull up your opponent's deck list next to you. And this is also a part of VOD replays that is inaccessible otherwise or in real time, which is you can take the time to slowly work through the turns and ask yourself, what options work the best on this turn. I mean, that also just references the fact that you might not know what the best possible play is, but when your opponent makes a play, you have to go through this comparison process of if they made this play, then what would have happened otherwise? Like, can you envision a board state is part of this skill, right? Like if you're a very strong technical player, you have the ability to envision what a very bad board state looks like versus what a very good board state looks like and calibrate towards that. I think that if you do want to figure out what your opponent's best play is, you basically have no other choice but to study the other top decks and why that play is so bad for you usually comes with uh, you assessing. You know, for example, in Pioneer, I play against blue eye control all the time. And one sequence that comes up a lot that I frequently talk about when I'm coaching is on turn four of the game, you want to play your most scary threat because your opponent, when they have four mana up, wants to take that turn to play memory deluge or the wandering emperor and so i try to explain this concept of actually if your opponent's most punishing play is something that doesn't let them spend their mana interacting with your play you want to make a play that doesn't give them that choice and so that kind of illustrates the sort of thinking that i'm trying to get at when i'm asking myself what is the most punishing play so that i can make a decision that makes their most punishing play less punishing because then they don't get to respond to your best play well yeah, I think one thing that you're sort of getting at here too that might be worth listening listeners and maybe if you disagree, let me know. But you're when you're watching these replays, like on Moto, if you don't know, Moto records all your games, listeners, uh, and you can just go to your game history and watch them. You're like pausing and thinking on the turn. You're not just like having it play in real time and very quickly go by. You're stopping and being like, okay, this and spending two three minutes, you know, thinking about the stuff and then all right, move through the turn. All right, well they did this. I forgot about that. What's going on here? Would you say that's what you're doing, Nathan? Totally. Yeah, I like that description. I feel like that summarizes the sort of 
tempo and, and pace of the process that you need to go through it. Think about whatever pace you played that game at and then add 2x that to the speed of the replay. The replay is meant for you to really hone in on this specific game and how it broke down. And so you're pausing in the most complex spots and try to take your time when you don't necessarily have it in the moment. Yeah, I I want to ask a follow-up question to this because I think that a lot of people kind of want to know when to st- where to start from here. And one of the things that I don't think is clear for so far from this conversation is how much of my time should I be doing this versus actually playing games of Magic? Yeah, that's a great point. So I think the best time to do replays is right after a match happens that you feel like you don't really know what the outcome of it like why it ended in a certain direction. What I frequently see is a game slips away from someone or it slips in your favor and you're not exactly sure why. Sure, you top decked a card, but is that really the reason why the game went in your favor? Um, I would say that it all depends on the testing partners that you have available to you. Like for myself in the past, I think I've spent um, entire weeks where, I, I mean, I guess this was probably six months ago or so where I just spent a week going through replays and, and just trying to figure out what was happening given mocks matches and studying for those. But in terms of how much time you can allocate to both of them, maybe you could say that 66% of your time should be playing games and the other 33% should be spent um, replaying them just as a heuristic. I, I got to challenge you. I'm really sorry. What percentage of my time should be studying those top decks then? Ooh. Well, that leaves about uh, 1%, right? <laughs> I think well, he's that... He's got you there. He's not wrong. Yeah, I think... <laughs> the math, let me check the math. It's just, quick. It's just simple math, Spencer. Yeah, I mean, I hate to like... you're, you're right, Nathan. Once These again, are Nathan the... wins at something. I yeah. hate to see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, for studying these decks, I suppose that... A big portion of playing should also be that you are spending your time figuring out what the opponent's deck is doing. So once you're more familiar, then you should get more into gameplay. I think studying is almost a prerequisite of playing games in some regard. So that's why I would categorize the two. Nice. I like that answer. Um, Let's see here. I think we only have one more question. Uh, Nathan, this comes from Adrian. Nathan, can you go over how you set aside enough time for school, enough time to continue to improve and test for Magic Tournaments? Uh, and can you give some tips on how to use your time effectively? I think you've you've done some of that, but yeah, whether it's for magic or other things though. Yeah, this is the part where trying to balance life skills with magic can be a little bit imposing. And honestly, it's why I had to drop out of college in order to pursue magic full time. It's very hard for you to split your attention in multiple directions when being at the top of magic and performing really well at tournaments takes up a ton of brain space. And so what I would recommend is if you're trying to juggle both school and magic, um, figure out how you can prioritize what's more important to you at the present moment. Like if you have something upcoming in school, I would say maybe you have to just take some time off of magic. I mean, what's really hard is how do you do well in these tournaments and have good prep and then also balance it with something else. For me, that's involved a ton of scheduling. Um, I've recently realized that in order to be productive, I have to use a calendar for even simple tasks because otherwise it just gets lost by the day when you're just spending it doing work or if you're also 
you know, doing meetings and other tournaments, it, it's very difficult. And so you have to be very conscientious of making sure you're scheduling things out into time chunks. I would even say that it, there's a skill you can learn with magic where you don't actually have to play as many hours. You, you just have to improve at being able to uh, theorize. And so th this is something that I wouldn't necessarily recommend to do at first when you're trying to get adjusted to a format, but you can apply past heuristics from testing for an event with certain matchups and that carries forward unless some unique factor changes them. So that's something to always keep in mind. Your your data and information that you get doesn't become obsolete after a tournament is over. Apes like lateral thinking, baby. Yeah. <laughs> We're broken broken in half. You can do that, you can do anything. Uh that is it from the listeners. Uh Mason or Abe, do you have anything else you wanna ask Nathan before we let him go? I have one that was a question we got from a listener a little bit ago that I, you know, Nathan, a lot of times people always ask, at least like me, I hear other people, they go like, oh, what do you wish you knew three, four years ago when you started playing Magic, right? But someone recently asked me, what do you wish you knew like four or five months ago? Uh, what's something that you recently kind of learned and had to kind of adapt or help improve your game? And so I'm going to pose that question to you. It can be a little tricky, but what's something that you think you learned that you wish you knew three or four months ago that you know now? So... I know the basis of this question. I know the category that I, I have improved more upon in these four to five months that could have happened sooner. Um, that being how I can be a better teammate overall and be more sp supportive with how I use my time. I wish I had known that what role I was best at four or five months ago. I think this has been a known factor for me up until the two pro tours ago where I really got some good feedback from people on my team and I really wish I had known um, what sort of skill sets don't necessarily benefit me in the short term, but are going to set my team up for success. That being how I can take more of a, a leadership role in terms of organizing gameplay and making sure that I am on top of actually involving myself constantly in back and forth with my teammates. I think one thing I struggle with is how can I keep up with my team and everything going on talking about different decks and archetypes and small little notes that I sometimes miss when I'm doing my day to day. Um, how can I do that every single day and also manage a full schedule for tournaments? And I think the answer is I have to stay in a lane that works for me. Um, that being, I have to sit down, I have to play games and I have to do valuable write-ups with my insights and getting better at that aspect of, being a part of the team was pretty invaluable, in my opinion. I love that. Learning your strengths and where you can improve is so sick. And my my final question for you is: so you right, you've basically done it all at this point that there is to do. What is your next goal? Is it to do it all again? Is it to see? It sounds like you know your team has taken a really big um, space of priority for you in a lot of your process. Is it to see them, you know, achieve the same the same things as you? Where, where is it that your next you know, your next goal is with magic. Where does that lie? I do have a lot of goals focused around my team, but currently I'm focusing on how I can work in the content creation space and help others improve. And so for me, that means uh, dedicating a good chunk of my time to starting a YouTube and also regularly engaging with streaming the, uh, big tournaments on arena and magical land on the weekends. I want to engage more with the larger community. And so I plan on doing things like competitive EDH events or normal EDH stuff 
and generally just making it known that like I really do love magic and participating and helping other people and I'll still be around for the bigger competitive tournaments but I do place a higher priority right now more than ever on um, being a good member of the community that encourages others. I have a final question. Uh, in five years, is Nathan the goat of magic? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's a question I've been contemplating myself. Like, am I going to be grinding magic for the next five years and trying my best to compete at the highest levels until then? Um, I would be lying to you if I said I had any inkling um, towards what the, the, my life is going to look like, but I'm positive that magic will still be a large part of it in some way, shape, or form. So I hope so. I, I like – hold on. I actually like this answer. You, The fact that you've thought about that is really cool. Like I think that you are one of very few humans who have ever been in the actual position to internalize that conversation, um, and I'm really glad that you've thought about it. <laughs> but I, yeah. I have a follow-up to this. I, I, sorry to interrupt. I got to, does the idea, cause like, you know, this is a conversation that was had, right? Like after your first tour, it was on Twitter a bunch too. And obviously you thought about it. Is the idea of potentially cementing yourself as, you know, if not the greatest of all time, you know, have a conversation be like, yeah, you know, it's like John, Kai, PV, Nathan, those are the top four, obviously. Is the idea of cementing that something that's very like motivating to you? Or is that like a non-factor in the way you think about things? It's certainly a factor. It's a little bit freaky for me because seeing myself compared to names that growing up I was in awe of is still super weird. And I consider myself some, someone who's pretty humble in general and not really too associated with certain titles or accolades, but it, yeah, it, it feels like sort of an out of body experience. Um, for me, what I feel the most strongly about is they should bring back the hall of fame and that would motivate me to want to grind these events and participate more just to be like, man, I made it like this is really what I want out of magic. And so if that were ever a thing, that would push me towards, man, I need to push as hard as I can until I get there. I I, I know that Gabe, uh, Gabe Nassif said that when PB got 10, it motivated, motivated him to get there too. Thanks. I mean, fresh off an arena championships 2-7, I'm ready to go. Coming up with <laughs> RC Dallas this week, so... I had a picture of you and Thanos ready for when you won. And then I was like, oh, I jumped the gun. I jinxed him. That's my bad. So I deleted it. No, actually. It's in your draft still. <laughs> yeah, it was actually Andre Strasky who um, jinxed me right before the tournament. He said, sorry, Nathan, you're not going to top eight this one. Literally just right before the tournament, he just dropped that to me. After I wrote in on the questionnaire, who do you think is going to make the finals of this tournament? Andre Strasky. It didn't ask who do you think is going to win. It says, who do you expect to see in the finals? I wrote Andre Strasky. He said, you're going to miss top eight. Brutal. <laughs> the real homie. That is brutal. That's kind of unreal. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But um, yeah. also, I'm going to leak that he's the one who told Frank Karsten to call the deck Jeskai Dragons. And so you can blame him for the labeling if anyone has an issue with the deck. I name. do. I think that name is so bad. Thanks, thanks for letting me know where to direct my anger. Anytime. Especially if it's Andre. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nathan... Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if people want to, uh, you know, hear from you or get in touch with you or hit you up about coaching work and they do all those things. Yeah. Um, you can definitely find me on Twitter at Nathan Stoyer one. And you can also book a session with me. If you want to do some coaching at Medify 
com slash Nathan Sawyer one. I do personalized sessions and I'm happy to come up with a game plan to help you improve. And otherwise feel free to shoot me a message and I'll send you one right back and happy to chat if you have any questions. I'm so excited for our final segment now, Abe. Aren't you? I am too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we get into that, we just want to shout out the bolt zone. Uh, the podcast that Nathan does that was not mentioned. Nathan, you got to shout out your podcast, man. Come on. Yeah. And if you listen to that interview and don't want to listen to his podcast, I don't know what you want out of a podcast. Because <laughs> that, I feel like I got so much out of that interview alone. And you know, I've been playing Magic for half my life. So, yeah. Uh, if you want to join the conversation directly, head on over to patreon.com, join the Discord for everybody for members of $5 or more. Uh, there's also a public discord for the, all of he's a game media, um, as well as, you know, you can leave a YouTube comment. It can be right on the show. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at CCMTG. You can check out Sam Black's podcast, Drafting Archetypes, also on the network. Um, yeah, tons of, tons of awesome th- ways to get a hold of us. And then of course, you know, the best way to support us is always to like, comment, subscribe, and review. It really is, it really does help the show out. It helps people find us and it, it means the world to us. Uh, if people want to find you directly, Mason, where are they going to do that? They go to twitter.com at Mason E. Clark. You can find me at twitch.tv slash Mason Clark. You can find me each and every week over at Card Kingdom this week. I'm running about the bannings and standard. We ain't going to talk about them today, but there's a lot of shakeups over there. So if you're curious about that, you can check that out. And if you want to get coaching from me, you can get over there on Twitter and DM me or my email, Mason E. Clark at gmail.com. Hey, what about you? Uh, people can find me over at twitter.com slash more nothings, um, or they can uh, send me an email if they're interested in coaching at more nothings at gmail.com. I probably can only take on maybe one more person with any regularity for the next month or two. Work's about to get really, really busy for me, and so I'm going to be pretty tied down. But the people who I am working with still, you're not going to worry. Uh, but we've already talked about that. Um, but yeah, you can find me over at Twitter. See, see me talk about music mostly these days because music's really good. Find me at Spencer13H. You can find me each um, week on the Need to Nerd podcast where we talk about nerd culture, gaming, anime, movies, TV, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then every month or so on Smash Through, an always approving podcast about Smash Bros. Um, as well as I am taking more coaching people now just because, uh, you know, uh, we're on three weeks without a job. Um, but I'm going to be, you know, hit me up. I'm going to offer discounted rates. Um, so just hit me up. Uh, the best way to do that is probably just email me at spencerhowland at gmail.com. Um, just so that, just to make sure that I see it. And yeah, with that being said though, I want to know, Mason, what did you learn this week? Uh, this might sound a little, a little funny. I was thinking if I should even say this, but it was very validating to hear Nathan talk. I, I think a lot of the stuff Nathan talked about today were things that I have been doing in small doses and I just need to continue improving on. Not to say that, you know, I'd be anywhere near as good as Nathan, but I feel like there was a lot of stuff today where I was like, yeah, this is stuff that like I talk about in coaching and I tell people to do. And like, these are things I do. And it was just really affirming to sort of hear that. And so that was what my, my learning was is that I'm kind of on the right track. I just need to put in a lot of work. Yeah. I think, I think that the validate, I don't know why you don't even feel bad for being validated. I, I think that, both the show the premise of the show how we've talked about teams in the past how we've talked like he he highlighted a lot of things that we we have covered in the history of the show 
the way that we talk about them and it, it goes to show that like i don't know that the show's built on principles that are it, the show has a fault solid foundation and i think that your coaching probably is the same way mm-hmm. Spencer, what about you what did you learn from this week uh i learned that uh when you're really really good at something you probably will think that you could be the goat at it uh no i that's a joke but uh, I, I, there was a really, there were some really interesting moments where he was talking about, um, I want to say what mine is, but it's so bad. I, I was really validated that he said he dropped out of college to focus on magic. Like, I know that that sounds bad and you have to be like crazy good at magic to do that. But, you know, there, there, there are so many people that think that they've got it or they think that they got it. And like he went through the process to find out that he had it so that he could do it. And I don't know. I just think that that's, that's really cool. Um, time management is really hard to do. And uh, you know, I think that his advice about a calendar is how I used to be able to do multiple, like all those podcasts every week and, and play, you know, 40 hours of magic week and have a job and have a kid. Like, I had to be so meticulous with my time and it's exhausting. Like I, he didn't mention this, but like as somebody who's done that, it is really tiring to be, have your whole life scheduled on a Google calendar. Um, you know, making sure that you have time for your wife, making sure that, like it is, it's a lot, but I think that his advice there was really good. Uh, Abe, what about you? I learned that against Nathan and probably most of team handshake, I should play my third best land on turn two. That is what I learned. I learned that I can I can throw off their entire process by changing my land drops, and I should. But also, like really, just thinking about how much information has passed from even just the small things was something that he really emphasized. And um, you know, thinking about that in terms of it, it was like, really funny. This is diverting that information too. I actually talked about this in a coaching session like last month, where we were talking about what the information somebody's sequencing of lands gives you with different decks. And we were talking about a specific matchup. So it's really funny to hear him talk about that. Yeah, I'm just saying I'm playing that Sulphur Springs on two no matter how many lands are in my hand. I'll take a point of damage. I'll take two. Worth it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's interesting, like, that sort of thing. I, I think another one, uh, I wish I had kind of brought up when Nathan was here to see what he thought. But, like, thought sees a big thing I bring up coaching is, like, okay, they thought sees you what does that tell you about their hand, right? Because they're playing with perfect information, but you're playing with some more information than you were a second ago, right? Because they took something from you. That if your hand I... is like... Go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, if your hand has like, a, like let's say, three different strengths, uh, it's I'm almost done with the, the lesson course on this one to have a, a Google slideshow ready in coaching. But uh, it is one where it's like, you know, if your hand had like Shieldred and Reckoner Bankbuster and Fatal Push, and they take a card, what does that mean, right? What could each one of those mean about their hand? And gives you a lot of information. It's like, well, wait, I think everyone thought, you know, Shieldred was one of the best cards, but they took Fatal Push. What, what, what's going on? Well, they might have an answer to Shieldred, you know? And so... We, so talk, we talked about this uh, in playtesting the other day, uh, me, Matt, and Quentin, where uh, the we, we were thought-seizing, and Quentin wanted to take Adeline... And then Matt was like, every person ever has taken Adeline out of my hand, even when I thought it was incorrect. And then we got into a conversation of, like, what should we take? And we ended up taking the Adeline. But it mm-hmm. was really interesting, like, uh, conversation about, like, 
well, is the Adeline actually to take? Shouldn't we take? Like, I think they had a the two two that gives uh, Ward one. But mm-hmm. it, it was it was an interesting conversation. Anyway, that is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. See you guys all next time with another episode of Constructed Criticism. <laughs>